We're in the practical application portion of uh, Romans. We've already gone through um, the first small little section in Romans chapter 12, but let's just kind of do a quick review of what we were looking at. Paul, the Goss, or the uh, Romans, you might call it Paul's Gospel because Paul spends the first eight or nine chapters or so going through a treatise on the Gospel. Um, it's basically a, theo- uh, a theological dissertation um, where he lays out God's redemptive plan for mankind. And then in 9, 10, and 11, he talks about God's plan for Israel and how Israel fits into that. Um, some people look at um, the Old Testament as being one plan of salvation and the New Testament being a different plan of salvation, but that's not the case. God's plan of salvation, his redemptive plan, has always been the same, always um, intended for Christ to die, always intended that Israel and the Gentiles would both be saved, ultimately because of the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And so Paul lays that out in 9, 10, and 11, that God's plan hasn't changed. His plan is still to save Gentiles and Jews all through the gospel of Jesus Christ. We took a break then for a little while, did an apologetic series, and then we got into the last major chunk of the book of Romans, which is chapters 12, 13, 14, 15, and then 16. And that's what we refer to as the practical application portion of the book. And really what uh, what you have to understand here is Paul does this fairly frequently, and it's because our behavior is always shaped by our thinking. So Paul always, almost always, spends the first part of his letters addressing some theological issue or concepts. Because as he challenges us in our head, ultimately that then challenges our heart and leads to proper behavior. And so the best way to sort of say it is there's always a response that's expected to the truth of God when it's been revealed. God expected that in the Old Testament when he revealed the law, and he expects it in the New Testament. And so the gospel expects a response. And so that's what Paul is doing here, is he's now telling us what we should expect in terms of response to the gospel, the goodness of God, the first um, 11, 12 chapter, or 11 chapters of Romans. What do we do with that? With the good news that God has redeemed mankind through Jesus Christ, through the gospel. And so we started this practical application section last week in chapter 12, and I think I shared with you that the primary um, thrust of this whole section now comes in the first two verses of chapter 12. Why don't you go ahead and turn there with me. Chapter 12, I'll just reread the first two verses. Paul writes this, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may approve what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. And so what we found there are two primary, I'll call them commands, with a single charge. One overarching thing that Paul wants us to understand about the gospel is that the gospel drives us or leads us to a transformed life. That our lives are supposed to be a living sacrifice, a genuine, honest sacrifice to God. You know, when we think, I was raised in a Catholic environment where worship was performing the Mass. You go through the rituals, much like you did in the, you know, they did in the Old Testament. That was worship. But that's not what God intends. Worship is that our lives might be uh, lived in a way that every breath we take, everything we do, everything we say reflects the gospel and the goodness of God. That's a transformed life. And so he says, let your lives be transformed by the renewing of your mind rather than being conformed to the world. 
there's an expectation that when we accept the gospel, we no longer look, act, or behave like the world around us. We're supposed to be uniquely different. We're supposed to think different, act different, smell different as Christians, if you will. So that's kind of the way Paul started off. And everything else in this section now, everything else in the last third of the book, is all about what that looks like to live a transformed life, to live a life that is a sacrifice, a living sacrifice to God. And he started last week by challenging us in one particular area, and that was to not think more highly of ourselves than we should. And really, last week's passage that dealt with spiritual gifts was part of that, and then this week's passage also still deals with that idea of not thinking too highly of yourself, and he's going to cover two more areas of that broader discussion. So last week was to think and understand your gifts that you have and how your gift is no more important than anybody else's gift. Your role in the church is no more important than anybody else's role. My role up here is not more important than your role. In fact, I had a conversation with Dustin on Friday that you know a lot of churches are built on the personality of the pastor, but that's not the glue that holds the church together. So it happens in the local body. And I, I'm thrilled by the fact that over the course of the last, you know, how many months here, when we've faced some very difficult challenges with Walker and with Jennifer and the, the stuff that's happened with all that, to see the body of Christ just come together as glue. That's what Paul was talking about last week, that no single individual is more important than anybody else. And so that's where it started. But then he finishes this week on this same general theme of, If you're going to live a transformed life, you have to recognize who you are and your role within the body and not think too highly of yourself. And so he's going to deal with two other areas. One is how to love one another without hypocrisy. And the second is how to bless those who persecute you. In other words, how do you handle those within the body of Christ that don't treat you the way you expect to be treated? So we're going to look at that today. Let's look at the first one. The first one is that our love for one another should be without hypocrisy. That actually is in um, verses 9 through 13. I'm going to grab my... Somebody put the clock over here. I don't know why, but it's like 20 minutes fast. I don't know if they deliberately set it 20 minutes fast to get me to finish early. Yeah. So I'm going to have to kind of watch uh, watch my phone here to make sure that I get you out of here before noon. I just noticed, I'm like, I have not been up here preaching for 20 minutes. There is no way. Yeah, brunch reservation. Somebody's trying to get us done here. So go ahead and turn to Romans chapter 9. I'll start in verse 9. I'm going to read 9 through 13. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. Not lagging behind in diligence. Fervent in spirit. Serving the Lord. Rejoicing in hope. Persevering in tribulation. Devoted to prayer. Contributing to the needs of the saints. Practicing hospitality. So he starts off in what looks like a command in the very first verse there that I read. Verse 9. But the reality of it is there's no actual command there in the verse. It's sort of implied. Greek kind of does that at times. You know, it's not like English where we can just, you know, in English you can't leave words out or it really messes up what you're saying. Greek sometimes can leave words out, can add words, um, because there are certain things that are implied. And in this particular instance, um, the word let is provided here because literally the verse just says, love without hypocrisy, but it's a noun. So the best way to think about that is love should be without hypocrisy. Really what he's doing here is he's telling us to love one another, but to do it in a way that does not demonstrate Hypocrisy. The word he uses here for love is agapao. We've heard the, you know, the discussion and debate upon the different words of Greek and which ones mean affection like phileo and which ones mean erotic love and which ones mean, um, you know, um, sort of this, um, 
unconditional love. And the word that's used here is agapao, which really means to have a high appreciation for one another. It means to um, have high regard for others. Look at them as better than yourselves in many respects. To love without hypocrisy means that it's supposed to be genuine or sincere. We all know what hypocrisy is. It's you say one thing and do something else. So if you say you love someone and behave in a way that doesn't demonstrate Christian love, you're not really loving them because that's hypocrisy. And so that's what he's saying here is that our love for one another should be without hypocrisy. It should be genuine. It should be real. It should look like Christ. And he's going to modify this statement now with two participles. Participles are I-N-G words. They tell us how to do something or they explain something. And so he says that love should be without hypocrisy. And the first participle he uses here is abhorring evil. Notice it looks like a command. He says, abhor evil or abhor what is evil. To abhor something means to hate or despise it. It's a pretty strong word. So he says that we are supposed to hate or despise what he calls here evil. It means that we're supposed to be repulsed by it. When we see something that's evil, it's supposed to make our skin crawl. So what does Paul refer to? Evil. It's the word that can basically refer to a number of things, but generally speaking, it's moral filth or wickedness. It's behavior unbecoming of a Christian. So Paul says that we are supposed to be repulsed by anything within the body of Christ that looks or reflects moral filth or wickedness. So our love should begin with having this aversion to that sort of thing. And I believe that what Paul probably has in mind is our own behavior. Meaning, not so much that we should be repulsed by when we see it in somebody else. That's a given in Scripture, right? We're supposed to be so repulsed by evil and wickedness that it should not be reflected in our own behavior towards one another. Unfortunately, sometimes we become a little bit callous when we allow our behavior to reflect moral filth and wickedness in the way that we treat one another's. You know, I don't remember who I had the conversation with. And, in fact, I think it might have been the men's Bible study we have on Tuesday morning. About how sometimes in those really close relationships that we have, those family relationships, that's where our we just seem to let our guard down and don't always treat people like we should. You know, it's interesting. I go to work sometimes and treat people at work better than I treat my own family. What is, what is up with that? We become callous sometimes towards one another. And Paul says, we ought to be repulsed by, by that kind of behavior. I think I told you um, one time when I was um, in seminary, I didn't do the counseling stuff that Grace Seminary offered. Instead, went to a church about two and a half hours away that had a, what's called a Nuthetic Counseling Ministry, which focuses on biblical counseling. It's using the scriptures to counsel people instead of an integration of psychology and other things. And it was a fantastic ministry. And I just remember one session I was sitting in where a young man had come in and he had committed adultery against his wife. And he kept referring to it as an affair. And finally, the, the counselor looked at him and said, okay, we're, we're done with this. An affair is lighthearted and fun and all that kind of stuff. What you did is not that. It's wickedness. It's sin. Called the guy out on it. Just called him out. He becomes somewhat callous. You know, in our society and culture, we kind of do that. Oh, it's an affair. You know, he went and cheated on his wife. No, he committed adultery. That's what the scriptures call it. It's wickedness. It's sin. And so the first thing we're told is that our love should be, should be so sincere that, that we are repulsed by anything that is unlike Christ as we behave towards one another. We're supposed to abhor evil and wickedness, filth. 
The second participle that he uses here, we're not just supposed to abhor what is evil or abhorring what is evil, we are to cling to what is good. So he says this, love is to be without hypocrisy, abhorring what is evil, clinging to what is good. That's the way it's described. In a literal sense, the word for cling here refers to joining things together by gluing them together or cementing them. Figuratively, it's used in the New Testament literally to that idea of clinging, holding tightly to somebody. It's the same picture of the woman coming up to Jesus and wanting to just, you know, just grab him. And he says, wait, woman, I haven't been to the Father yet. You know, it's that idea of clinging, holding tightly to something. So he says here that we're supposed to have that type of attitude towards moral goodness. So while we are to be repelled by wickedness, evilness, and filth, we're supposed to be pulled towards and cling towards the opposite, which is moral goodness. So in order for our love to be sincere, it has to reflect these two things. When we love one another... When the world looks at that, when we look at it, what we should should see is that within ourselves, we ought to be repulsed by and and pushing back against uh, behavior towards one another that would look like the world, and instead to cling to moral goodness. So as we think about those relationships within the body, when we think about our love towards one another, those two things really ought to drive it. We ought to be so driven to cling to good behavior, moral behavior towards one another, that anything outside of that just repulses us. In some respects, it ought to be, it's sort of like, you know, you do something against somebody, you realize you sinned, and you just kind of go, ah, so what? And you walk away? That's callous, right? But you sin against somebody, and you walk away, and you go, wow, I can't believe I did that to that person. It makes me sick to my stomach. It ought to drive us to the point where we now got to say something. And I'll be real frank, I get callous towards that. I think a lot of us do, you know? And that's really what he's talking about here. We ought to be repulsed by that. We ought to literally want to cling to what is good in our behavior towards one another. So that's the manner of love he's talking about. Now, what he's going to do in the rest of this, verses 10 through 13, it's rather interesting here because he goes through and he lists a bunch of participles again now that are going to tell us the manner in which that's done, the manner in which we're supposed to be repulsed by evil and cling to good. How do we cling to good? What kind of things is he talking about? He's going to list eight different things here. Let's just read down through these. He starts off in verse 10. He says that we are to be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Again, these are all participles. It doesn't get reflected real well in English. What most translations do here is they translate all of these as commands. You know, be devoted, be fervent in spirit. It's just, but it's really not what the text says. It's again, all of these are simply participles, ing words, which sort of describe what clinging to good looks like. And the first thing he says that describes clinging to good is be, being devoted to one another in mutual love, giving preference or preference to one another. So we should be giving preference. To cling to good means we should give preference to others. We ought to be thinking about what their needs are rather than our own. How oftentimes do we, when we're involved with things, um, put our own needs above those of others within the church? Does it ever happen with you? I know it happens with me or I think first and foremost in myself and how it might impact me. We're not supposed to be that way. We're supposed to give preference, preference to another. He says here in the next one, we are to be diligently serving one another. He says, not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. If we look at that more literally, the phrase literally is this, in haste, without lagging, being fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. So we ultimately are to be serving the Lord, being fervent in spirit, being diligent 
And there he's likely talking about serving the Lord towards one another, using our gifts and abilities and how we look towards one another. In verse 12 he says this, that we're supposed to rejoice in hope. Again, it's a participle, rejoicing in hope. You know, it's interesting when you look at the scriptures and you see how we're told to give a defense of the hope that we have. We're supposed to be rejoicing in hope. It's interesting that he ties that to love. He says also in verse 12 there, that we're supposed to persevere in difficulty, persevering in tribulation. Again, probably with one another. I think about what the walkers are going through right now. You know, um, one of the things that we're called to do is to persevere with them, hang in there with them. It's a long haul. We've, you know, we've talked about um, how easy it is to forget when we don't see people on a regular basis. And so one of the things we did to try to encourage continuing to pray for, pray for Walker was to have some shirts made up. I wear mine when I work out in the morning. Um, kind of remember to persevere with them, to hang in with them. That's what we're supposed to do. That's what love looks like. He says in verse 12, also, we're supposed to pray continually. The literal phrase there is, in prayer, continuing, and then he adds this, intensively. We are to be intensively praying for one another as the body of Christ. That's what love is. He says in verse 13, another participle, we are to be contributing to the needs of the saints. I love the fact, again, that as I look at how this church has responded to some of the needs we've seen within our own body here, and what people have been willing to do, that's what we're supposed to do, contributing to the needs of the saints. You know, it's interesting, you know, you talk about giving. I was watching, we finished up watching something last night, I don't remember what it was, or what I had, I was doing my stretching that I do every night, and I don't know what channel it is on DirecTV, it's the Word channel, and it's one of those charismatic channels, and it had some prophet person on there preaching, you know, and it was, you know, it's interesting because it was, got back into the whole giving, financial giving thing and blessing and how if you give. And then um, another show came on right after that. It was, again, the same thing. It was all about placing your seed faith gift, you know. And then and then I flipped over to another channel and saw a, a Southern Baptist, a very popular Southern Baptist minister. Um, I've seen him on Fox News a number of times, but um, about 15 minutes of his 30-minute program was devoted to sending him $75 to get his gift set, which kind of surprised me because he's a fairly well-known Southern Baptist um, evangelical pastor, but I, but and I only bring that up for this reason. That's not contributing. I mean, it is financial giving to a church family to to, to use those that, that money for for helping to support the church and to be involved. And you know, part of the chunk of, of uh, money that, that was given to the church last year, we, we gave to the the Dietrichs um, uh, family for their ministry down in is it. Uh, Brazil, I can't think of Africa, Brazil. Um, that's, that's part of our giving, but you know what? On a daily basis, contributing to the needs of the saints goes beyond financials, doesn't it? It's seeing what they need and what we have to do, whether it's emotional, physical, psychological, whatever we can do. Okay, And that's, that's what love is. And so he says we're supposed to be doing that, continuing to do that. He goes, verse 13 again, he gives us another participle, practicing hospitality. It's actually more literally pursuing hospitality, looking for opportunities to be hospitable. And the word there that Paul uses for hospitality is actually a word that refers to hospitality, or hospitality outside the immediate family or circle of friends. It's primarily still focused on the body, 
But the idea of hospitality means it goes beyond just having your brother over, just having your best friend over. It means extending your hospitality outside of that circle of friends to the body of Christ in general. And so he says love, if you're to cling to what is good, one of the things that's good is practicing hospitality, going out of your way to be hospitable, letting people into your home or inviting them to spend time with you. These are all the good that he says we're to cling to. And so for our love to be sincere, without hypocrisy, it ought to look like these things. Giving preference to one another, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, persevering in difficulty, praying continually, meeting each other's needs, being hospitable. That's what love looks like when it's not hypocritical. So last week Paul reminded us to keep ourselves from thinking too highly of ourselves And this is one of the ways we do it. So here he reminds us not to think of ourselves more highly by reminding us to love without hypocrisy. Now he's going to move on to a final area that still is sort of under this umbrella of thinking too highly of ourselves. And it's this. Love should be reflected in our interactions even when we're mistreated. All of the things I just mentioned, those are easy when they're reciprocated, right? Right? Those are all easy when everybody else treats us like that. But what about when other believers, or even those outside the church, mistreat us or persecute us? There's going to be three things I'm going to highlight here. The first one is that we're going to be kind when mistreated. I want you to turn to verse 14. I'm going to read 14 through 21 here. Paul says, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind towards one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved. But leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him, and if he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So what's he saying here? He starts off with this charge, bless those who persecute you, bless them and do not curse. So basically, the best way for me to rephrase that is, we're to be kind when we're mistreated. We're to be kind when mistreated. Most instances of persecution in the New Testament refer to Christians being persecuted by non-Christians. It's possible Paul has that in mind here. However, the context seems to suggest that he's referring to animosity among Christians. And part of that is because almost everything in chapters 12, 13, 14, and 15 have this underlying thought of unity within the body of Christ. And so really, Paul's, I think, referring here to not persecution by outside the church, or by outsiders, but rather, what happens within the church when we get mistreated by another believer? How are we to respond? Well, he says, bless them. Bless them when they persecute. Bless them, and do not curse. The word for bless there means to speak well of somebody. It means to bestow divine favor on somebody. To act kindly towards them. It's probably this third meaning that has the most significance here, to act kindly towards somebody. So in other words, when you're persecuted, Paul says, respond with kindness. 
I have a friend of mine who, um, one of my best friends when I was in college, um, prior to meeting Mr. Speckle, um, I had actually roomed with him for a while. Um, and we got this situation where we, he was the first guy I ever met in college. And um, so for the first year almost, we were inseparable. We did everything together, ate every meal together. We were in computer science together. We worked together. And they got at a point where he had kind of started to distance himself. I really don't know why. But, um, and it caused some real tension. He was a believer in Christ. It caused some real tension. And I remember we were in a discipleship group together. And the guy that led the discipleship group, I asked him one time about it, and I told him how frustrated I was. And I made a comment. I said, you know, um, I pray about the situation all the time. I'm always praying about it. He said, well, do you pray for him? And I said, well, yeah, I just told you. I pray about it all the time. He goes, no, I didn't ask if you pray about it, but do you pray for him specifically? I'm like, no, not really. I'm kind of upset with him. Why would I do that, you know? He's like, well, think about this. Something's going on. For some reason, he's behaving the way that he's behaving. Um, maybe there's some things that that he's got going on. Why don't you start praying for him instead of just praying about the situation? So I started to do that. So I started to ask him, so what's going on? What can I pray for you for? Um, it's interesting. It made a pretty significant difference in that relationship. God used that. But it was tough because I was angry and upset with him. I don't want to pray for him, you know. Similar to this. When you're being mistreated or not being treated appropriately, how do you respond? Well, Paul says respond with kindness. Matthew chapter 5, verse 44 says this. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute. Now, persecute, you know, there he's likely talking about those outside the Jewish family. This is Jesus' words, but it works within the family too. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 12, Paul says this, When we are reviled, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure. 1 Peter, Peter says this in chapter 3, verse 9, We don't return evil for evil or insult for insult, but give a blessing instead. For you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. Paul even repeats that to Timothy, or I'm sorry, to the Thessalonians when he tells them the same thing. When you're persecuted, bless. That's kind of a hard pill to swallow sometimes, isn't it? The last thing we feel like doing when somebody mistreats us, especially a brother or sister in Christ, where they know better, their behavior should be better, should be just like mine, perfect and righteous and whole. Well, maybe not. But how do we respond typically with that? We certainly don't want to be kind, usually, or gracious, or bless them. Sometimes we want to take our pound of flesh. Just like the world. But remember, Paul says, be transformed. (laughs) Think differently. Don't be conformed to what the world does. He goes on in verse 13. Look at what he says in verse 13. I'm sorry, actually, it's uh, 14. He says, uh, bless and do not curse. Now he means there, do not curse them. You know, do not wish evil upon them. Have you ever found yourself in a situation where somebody really wronged you and In your heart, you're just thinking, man, they'll get theirs. (laughs) Or maybe they do get theirs, and you feel good about it. You know? He says, no. Bless them. Don't desire cursing for them. So the first thing he says is we're to be kind when mistreated. The second thing he says is we're supposed to be empathetic towards one another when we're mistreated. Look at uh, verse 15. He says, rejoice with those who rejoice, and weep with those who weep. Now that's still in the context of those who are persecuting us. We're supposed to rejoice with those who rejoice. 
Another way to say this should be, or would be, be happy with others when they're happy. Celebrate their happiness. Good things for them. He says we're supposed to weep with those who weep. He goes on to say, being of the same mind towards one another, not being haughty, but associating with the lowly. You know how oftentimes um, mistreatment comes because of an issue somebody might be struggling with. You know, sometimes people lash out because things aren't going too well in their own lives. It's interesting how, you know, they mistreat us because of something going on. You know, I think about coming home from work. If I've had a really rotten day at work and I come home and I'm not very nice at home and my family pays the price, sometimes that's what leads us to mistreat one another. And amazing what will happen if the response to that would be, wow, something must really be driving that. Let me figure out what's going on. When you find out what it is, empathize with them. Wow, you know what? I, I know that you lashed out because of ABC. What can I do? I understand. I think I shared an example of a, a, one of my professors who was this amazing counselor who I don't think I've ever met somebody that, had, that, that could empathize with somebody like he does. Man, it's like he just gets inside their skin and when they weep, he weeps. And when they cry... He cries. Um, there's a something about, about that. And so he says that when we're persecuted, when we're mistreated, we ought to rejoice with them and weep with them, understand what's going on, um, be empathetic towards them. That doesn't mean excuse it, does it? It just means understand it. It's amazing what happens to us when we understand that there's something driving that mistreatment sometimes makes us a little bit more tolerant when we understand what's going on behind it. doesn't excuse it. Same thing with our own kids as we, we've raised them to discipline them, you know. Um, we want to understand why they do what they do, but it doesn't excuse what they did. And sometimes they would give us an excuse for something. Well, I did it because of this. We understand that, but that doesn't excuse the behavior. So empathize. He says when people mistreat us, we're not only to be kind to them, but try to em- empathize with them. Understand what's going on. He goes on to a third thing, and he says... That when we are mistreated, we're not to return evil for evil. We're not to return evil for evil, but instead leave room for God's judgment. Notice he says this in verse 16. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. So he says that we're not to be wise in our own estimation. So what does he mean by that? Um, I think I have an example. Um, Amy and I shared, or I shared last week, that uh, a neighbor that we've trusted with our garage code who comes in occasionally, takes care of our dog, uh, has entered our house on multiple occasions without us knowing it, and has stolen some things from us. Um, so, trying to determine how best to respond to that has been a challenge. An individual who needs some help, um, maybe a drug problem involved, we're not sure. But, there's an element of, you broke into my home, there's consequences for that. But there's the other side of it, which is um, somebody needs some help. Somebody needs Christ. So um, the 
how we're supposed to manage that and work through that. And what's interesting about that is we've handed it off to be dealt with now by the authorities, but we've made our wishes and desires very, very clear how we would like to see this handled. But we also recognize that we have to sort of hand that over, and now everything's in God's hands. And we know that it might go nowhere, or it might go somewhere. And what's interesting is... um, we could play the game where we try to manipulate and force things to move in a certain direction, but that's my own wisdom. I don't know that's where God wants to take it. And so being wise in my own estimation, when somebody has mistreated us, means that I'm just going to sort of do what I think is best and follow my own imagination, my own mind, and try to make it work out the way that I think it should work out. And as I was praying about this last night, I thought, you know what? God's got to protect my heart from that. Because... This may not get resolved to our liking. And how do we respond to that? What do we do? It's going to have to just be no. It's God. And part of what Paul says here is, don't take your own vengeance. Leave room for God. Look at what he says. Never taking your own revenge, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, for it is written vengeance is mine, I will repay. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in doing so, you will heap burning coals upon his head. So how have we chosen to respond to this? God's going to have to work it out. It's his job. Only he knows what's best for this individual. We have to trust that he will do what's best for himself and for this person. Not us. So we have to allow God to do what God's going to do with all of it. We're going to seek our own vengeance, payback for what happened. In fact, we had the cop over last night, and we was talking, and he said, you know, it's interesting because the first response usually from people is, when this happens, lock them up, throw away the key. He said, that is just almost universal. Well, we've chosen not to respond that way. You know? Um, but it's been a challenge. So when people mistreat you, and this is, this is dealing with somebody who's an outsider, but it's the same thing within the church family. How do we respond when somebody mistreats us? God's a judge. God will deal with it. Okay, That's Paul's point. The last thing he says is that we are not to be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Look at verse 21. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That's an interesting statement. It's a great way to summarize it. The word for overcome there means to be conquered or to conquer. I think the Holman translation translates it that way. It means to have victory over something. So in this case, Paul says that we conquer evil or conquer wickedness. And what wickedness is he referring to there? The persecution against us. We overcome that by returning good when wronged. Notice how he phrases that. Do not be overcome by evil, and then he flips it, but overcome evil with good. That's just good wisdom, folks. My mom taught me something growing up. I've shared stories about my my time as a lifeguard and how I didn't always live by the principles that my mom had taught us. But my mom had this great way. She managed a a man-made lake, and there were were days um, where at this lake we might have 3,000 patrons come in. You can imagine they're all young kids and high school and college kids. And um, every day there's an issue. And having to deal with people. And when you deal with the public, the public is nuts. You know? The public is nuts, folks. Ask a salesman. Ask a salesman, yeah. Um, 
I keep telling people about my job. I'm like, if I didn't have people to deal with, my job would be great, you know? Um, so every day she didn't deal with this. But my mom was great at just diffusing tense situations, you know? And the way that she did it was she was kind and she was gracious. She never returned vulgar language for vulgar language. She never returned accusations for accusations. She never returned anything that was thrown at her except kindness. And it was amazing to watch how oftentimes people that would come in and they'd be standing there, they'd be berating my mother or berating another lifeguard because they weren't happy about something and just... My mom's just listening and going on and, okay, and working through it, you know. And next thing you know, these people are apologizing for their wicked behavior. Man, I'm so sorry. I acted like an idiot, you know. It's like, wow, I would have punched him. He's unconscious. What can he do, you know? He got what, he, what was coming to him. Mom was always great at returning good for evil because it diffuses the situation. Now, is it always going to work? That's not what Paul's saying here. When he's talking about persecution within the church, mistreatment within the church, regular, you know, ongoing behavior and how we behave and what we do, that's what he's talking about. I had a situation when I was, um, after I started my first church, it's not the first pastoring job that I had, but first church I started here, um, I had a couple who did my music for me. And um, they were there every single week. They were faithful every single week they were there. But because they were there every single week doing music, and they never got a break, um, when we came to do a celebration service one time for our anniversary, um, I had some friends that said, hey, we'd love to come down and minister to you guys and do the music with you. And they knew that I played guitar and stuff, so they invited me to play guitar with them. And so I thought, well, okay. So I went to this couple and I said, hey, you guys never get a break. You keep talking about wanting a break. You do a little bit of whining and complaining about wanting a break. We've got some friends that want to come down and do this for us. Would you, how do you feel about that? And they're like, well, that sounds great, you know? And I said, no, you can play along. I'm going to play if you want to play along, but they'll take care of planning everything. You can just come up there and jam along. No, 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 we're fine. We're fine, you know? And I think I went to them three or four different times. And they were like, no, this is awesome. So we went, we had our celebration service, you know, the next week at church. Um, they came up to me, and the husband got literally about three or four inches from my nose, in my face, and he was already beet red. And I could tell this guy was irritated. He was bigger than me, long hair, you know, rocker dude, you know, um, uh, alcohol and drugs in his past kind of a thing. So he's a pretty, pretty rough guy, okay? But literally about three or four inches of my face, and he was just livid and shaking. And I looked down, and I see both of his hands clenched, you know, and you can just sort of tell. I'm thinking, okay. Well, he was mad because we took an opportunity away from him. Excuse me? Well, this is the celebration service. We should have been the ones doing the music. So at that moment, I'm thinking, this guy wants to punch me. And would you believe the next words out of his mouth were, I am this close. I am so ready to just, I'm just ready. I'm going to drop you. I'm going to, Amy, sitting off to the side, wigging out, you know, um, watching her husband get his face collapsed. Um, but in that, I'm thinking of my mom. I'm thinking, what did mom do? What did mom do? What did mom do? And so, it's kind of saying, man, Rick, I'm, I'm really sorry. You know, I, I thought, you and I had talked about this, um, I didn't intend to take this opportunity away from you. You're right. This is a celebration service. You guys have been ministering this whole time. I can see why you're bothered and upset by it. I really thought I was helping out. Some friends offered to come by to help us out. I thought I communicated that to you. For some reason... You felt like I was taking that opportunity away. I wish you would have said something to me. So I'm sorry. Now, was I right or wrong? I think I was right to do what I had done. I gave him every opportunity. But at that moment, you know what? Taking a step back and thinking, 
I can take him. You know, he's an old guy. You know, I'll let him get in one good swing. But if he touches me, I'm going to drop him. No. I thought, you know what? The best way to defuse this situation is return kindness, goodness. You know what? He mellowed out. You know, everything was cool. They were back doing music the next week. You know, everything was all right. Um, Amy asked me later, she goes, I don't, I don't get it. How could you? And I'm like, you know, that's what mom and dad were. I kind of learned. I, I wish I could say I learned that for my Christian faith, but I was taught that by my mom and dad. Now, when I was younger, I didn't always do that. And as I became a Christian, now it sort of made sense, you know? So, how do we behave? Why don't we go ahead and just wrap this up? Um, Paul began the practical application of the letter um, primarily with talking about being a living sacrifice, being transformed in your thinking. Um, and in this first group of what I'll call two passages here, he's dealing with just recognizing our place in the body of Christ. We're no more important than anybody else. Um, we've got gifts that reflect that. We're not more important than somebody else. We're not less important than somebody else. And so we express that through our gifts. But we also express that through when people persecute us or mistreat us, how we respond. Oftentimes when we get mistreated, we puff up our chest. You know, we're smarter than them. We're more holy than them. We're more righteous than them. We're, you know, whatever it is. And Paul says, you know what? Um, proper thinking about who you are and who you are in Christ demands that even in persecution, even in mistreatment, you still have to respond a certain way. And we respond a certain way by being kind in the things that we do. We give room for God's vengeance and not our own. We respond with um, goodness over evil. All of that is living a transformed life. You know, Jesus himself said that we're supposed to love our enemies. Ouch, right? Pretty hard. But Christ died for his enemies. You know, that was the perfect reflection of that. So, the transformed life means that that's the way that we behave. But it requires that we think a little bit differently um, in order to do that. So, Paul walks us through that, and he basically helps us to understand that our response to the gospel is this. We love each other without hypocrisy. We recognize who we are in the body of Christ and our gifts and abilities. When it comes to persecution and getting mistreated, we behave a certain way. All those things reflect living out the gospel. And that's really what this is all about. Because again, it's a response to what he did in the first 11 chapters of the book of Romans. Because of the gospel, this is now what God expects. All right? So we'll go ahead and wrap it up with that. Paul's going to continue on with um, a number of different things that all sort of reflect this idea of living a transformed life. It deals with how we respond to government even and how we respond to one another. And what do we do when we have matters of disagreement in terms of um, what we can and cannot do as believers? He's going to handle all those kind of questions as we go over the course of the next few weeks.